All right, thank you guys for watching here on YouTube. We're at the Barbell Medicine Seminar here in Brooklyn, New York. Thank you. Yeah, Brooklyn. Places. Places. <laughs> I don't have my Timberlands. Okay, so we're gonna do a Q&A. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna do a Q&A. Uh, this is a new way that we've been doing these where we have curated questions that have been submitted over the weekend. And uh, so we'll try to answer them to the best of our ability. If a question was not selected and you guys submitted it to us, please go to our forum. It's barbellmedicine.com. There's a forum link. We try to answer those pretty regularly. We'll get to it. Don't DM us about it. <laughs> okay, uh, let's get into some questions. Uh, so for non-strength athletes, like basketball, volleyball, baseball, Ball, every sport that's not powerlifting or weightlifting. Uh, how strong is strong enough? How do you determine if and when devoting training resources to maximal force output outweighs the benefits to on-field performance? Do you want me to start? Sure. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. Um, I think that first you'd have to kind of look at the sport by sport. So there's not one answer that is universally applicable here from like a, a, you know, how much how much of somebody's total training resources should be devoted towards uh, training with diaper resistance training. The other thing is, if a sport has a high, uh, places a high uh, sort of importance on high velocity force production, I probably wouldn't spend a ton of time doing low velocity force production. So training at maximal weights where the the bar velocity is slow. Um, there's a lot of muscle fiber type conversion that goes on there. So for instance, if you had a sprinter who trained only using very heavy sets of five, the muscle fiber type conversion that goes on there is from type 2B muscle fibers to type 2A muscle fibers, which are lower velocity, high force produ producing muscle fibers. But that's not what they want as a sprinter. They want the type 2B fibers that are high velocity force producing muscle fibers. So you wouldn't want to do maybe any of that, uh, or certainly not a lot of it. I think that there's an inflection point which how, between uh, where you spend so much time in the gym lifting weights that it compromises your ability to either recover from or participate in higher volumes of your sport, your sport practice or, or things dedicated to your, to your sport. Or even sampling other sports that are not resistance training. Mm -hmm. So like a basketball player, if they told me that they were training with weights more than three times a week, I'd be ask them why. You know, and in season, it might be twice a week. Mm -hmm. I think that a basketball player should be obviously practicing the sport, engaged in getting stronger across multiple different intensities, and training their conditioning up to a point that you know that's consistent with their sport-specific needs. And then, if they have additional time after that, I probably wouldn't do more barbell training. I'd have them try to play another sport, or study art history, or some other sort of sampling where they're live their life. yeah, live their <laughs> life, right? So. Yeah, I think if you're gonna try to answer this question, again, generalizing it across multiple sports is probably a fool's errand and kind of can't be done. The question would be, why, would, why should an athlete in another sport perform resistance training? And in our opinion, there's probably two compelling arguments to be made. Number one is for reduction in injury risk. We have a pretty solid evidence base on this in multiple sporting contexts that getting these athletes stronger can reduce their injury risk. However, I think that the amount of strength that they actually need to be able to demonstrate to achieve that risk reduction is not super, super high. In other words, I can't say that if I take a soccer player's squat from 315 for five to 365 for five that they're gonna get injured way less frequently 
on the field, yeah. right? So I don't think, I think they definitely should be strength training for the purposes of injury risk reduction, but I don't think they need to get powerlifting strong. They don't, they don't really need to get super, super strong. The other argument is from a performance standpoint, and that is where the this so-called carryover from their strength training into, the, into their performance is gonna be very strongly related to their actual sporting demands, right? And so that's where you need to look sport by sport. What are the force production demands of this sport? So if I had, you know, a, a, a track and field athlete who wanted to go do a bunch of shot putting or something, it's like, yeah, they need to be pretty strong, right? But if I had like a badminton player or something, right? How strong do they need to be to jack up their performance? Am I gonna try to get them to squat 500 for their sport? Am I gonna get them to squat 400 for their sport? Do you gonna get them to squat 300 for their sport? Do you care if they're I using... I don't particularly care, yeah. right? Yeah. Or do I care whether they're squatting versus doing some other type of resistance training? Exactly, that's, yeah. For, yeah. Can I make a very, very clear, strong argument for that over other types of resistance training. I don't have the evidence base to say something like that. I know, I know that I would like for them to be stronger if they're completely untrained and you know can barely do a sit to stand out yeah. of a chair, but then yeah. they're sarcopenic and we got bigger problems, right? So definitely based on sporting demands for performance and then the risk reduction for injury is pretty compelling argument, although you don't, again, need to be a powerlifter to achieve that. Yeah. Arguably, that would set you back more if you train like a powerlifter while yeah. you're trying to compete for it in another sport. Well, yeah, and again, because you're just making, if you're training like a powerlifter, then you're making compromises that you don't need to make it with respect to exercise, selection, intensities that you're mm -hmm. using, uh, and, and sort of, lack of conditioning that you're gonna not engage in because sure. you're training like a powerlifter, right? Um, and, and anyway, I, I think it was really elegant what you said. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> because it, it, our confidence in what we say uh, in co the context of this particular question gets worse the more like specific the recommendations get as far as like how strong should you be, which exercises should you be using, what reps, like yeah, you know. The confidence intervals get wider and wider and yeah, wider yeah, yeah. on these Where things. Where we say, yeah, you should be stronger in general for injury risk reduction and that in general, these are some training philosophies that have evidence to support these certain training adaptations, which we think would likely be useful to certain sporting applications, but to be like, yeah, you should use this squat variation, this rep scheme, this average intensity, like. And you need to do double body weight for it. Like that's just made up. It's just made up, yeah. yeah. It doesn't mean that we don't think that people should get stronger. It just means that we can't say that very confidently, you know, because uh, we just don't have evidence there. Yeah. Elegant. Hey. I try. E. Uh, how do you hold the athlete accountable and improve resilience and avoid letting them off the hook or coddling too much based on their feelings or excuses? Uh, I don't know that I do that. <laughs> well, what I mean is that I, it just depends on the context because I don't know that I care enough to fight them on a particular thing. Rather, I want to know why they're having issues. Mm -hmm. Because I'm not looking to manage this symptomatically like, oh, you don't want to squat today or you don't want to do the set of five or you're avoiding you know, doing a set that scares you or a rep that scares you because you think you might fail. Like, well, why does it scare you? How do we, like, let's get to the root of it and manage that. If you're having a bunch of internal load, <laughs> you know, uh, anxiety and stress about completing a certain task, I want to know why. And then maybe we can find a way to work around that versus just saying, ah, don't do it. So I'm not saying just skip it, but I want to know why yep. more than uh, just saying don't do it or, hey, come on, if you don't do this, you're a bad human. 
Yeah. Where's my rest? Where's the belt? Yeah, brother, you're a bad human. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. If 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 things in training are not going as expected, or um, there are issues coming up and excuses and things like that, definitely getting to the root of it and asking why is probably the first big step. Just like with behavior change, you're you're trying to identify barriers and work through them. And so, if there are barriers present to successful training that have not been identified, then that's a situation where they might come out, where if an athlete is consistently having issues adhering to the program, for example, right? trying to identify why is probably the biggest factor to start working around that and knocking that barrier down versus saying, ah, it's okay that you skipped you know, two out of your four sessions this week or something like that. Yeah. That's really, I mean, of and, course and, and then the, okay. only other, the, the only other thing I would add here is that you know, how do you hold the athlete accountable and improve resilience, et cetera? Part of this needs to be couched in the context of their goals, right? So if they say yep. uh, they want to win nationals, right, and yet they're skipping sessions or they're skipping sets or they're making certain excuses or they're not adding weight to the bar when they clearly were able to or something like that, you have to ask them. Yeah, I, I oftentimes ask that in the context of their goals. It's like, how bad do you actually want to do this thing? Your behavior would suggest that maybe you don't, or there's something else that we have that has not come up yet in our conversations that is influencing yeah. your ability to adhere to the plan towards this thing, right? Because people will say all kinds of things, right? I want to win the CrossFit Games. Yeah, I mean, I've talked about. We interviewed, you know, Sam Calhoun, who's one of my trainees, who's you know. USAPL national champion from last year in the 63 kilo weight class. And when she first contacted me, which was like approaching three years ago or something like that, and she said, so I want to win nationals. And this was when she was like fairly early on in the competitive game. And we had, you know, big names like Jennifer Thompson, things like that in the sport. And she, and, and she was like, I want to win nationals. And I was like, uh, all right, we got some work to do. And every single day, ever since then, she has done 100% of what she needs to do to be able to accomplish that with not a shred of you know, excuse or skipping anything or not adhering to the plan or doing something like that, right? Because she is probably hungrier than anyone I've ever seen to accomplish that. And for that, she for did, that goal. For that particular goal, yeah. right? And if she had been doing other things, skipping sets or sessions or something like that, uh, then that would have made me question, is something going on, maybe in your life or relationships or something like that that's interfering? Or are you maybe not quite, as, maybe you don't actually understand what is required to accomplish this particular thing, right? So, so looking at the individual's goals and how serious they are about them is another thing to look at here. Yeah, well, I think about, you know, so, so for instance, you recently had to change your training in secondary to like motivational, issues which have stemmed from having pain mm -hmm. and discomfort doing certain things. So if I was like actively coaching you and you sent me a text like, yo dude, I don't want to squat today because you know it hurts when I do this and I'm frustrated and it's annoying and blah, blah, blah. And I, my response was just do it. <laughs> I, would missed the, I would have missed the opportunity to find out context for why you were feeling this way, mm -hmm. right? And so it's like you want to get to the root of the thing to figure out, okay, is the person hurt? Do they have a bunch of extra stress going on in their life? Do they not understand all the things that need to go into this? Like, where's the disconnect, right? Yep. Uh, or alternatively, they may be like, I don't actually believe that what I'm doing is going to get me to my goal. So for instance, if you program for Sam Calhoun, like a bunch of like running, 
you're like, yeah, first thing in the morning, wake up, fasted, you know, 10 mile run, 10 mile run builds stamina <laughs> and you need stamina for the, those nine attempts spread out <laughs> by eight minutes at a time. <laughs> More than that. Well, yeah, yeah that's yeah, what, yeah. But so, yeah. you know, and she, and then, you know, a couple months in, she's like, no, <laughs> but you know, that might be a lack of either, you know, understanding like why you're doing what you're doing and insight into the process. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's just, it's just missing an opportunity to identify what's going on and like be a better coach. Yeah. All right. We're on three. Yeah. All right. Why is HDL cholesterol, an HDL cholesterol value of less than 60 considered a negative risk factor in the Framingham risk score for heart disease if the effects are, are relatively unknown? So the risks are actually a little bit lower than that. If things are 60 or higher, we're generally feeling pretty good. Even if in their 50s, particularly for, um, for a male, we're feeling pretty good about that too. But the idea of the question here is that if low HDL cholesterol levels are considered to be a negative or, or a risk factor, meaning that they reflect a higher degree of risk for cardiovascular disease, um, how is that the case if, based on what I said in the lecture, we don't really understand a ton about, uh, uh, about HDL in particular, which is true. We know a good amount, but it's still probably the most mysterious of the lipoproteins that I mentioned. Um, the idea here is that it appears to be more kind of a, a, a biomarker or a correlate for risk rather than a, co a, a causative driver of the risk. So this is what I was getting at when I mentioned how we've tried, we've trialed a number of medications that are specifically designed to drive up HDL cholesterol, make that number go up, thinking that, hey, that should improve outcomes. And then it turns out that it doesn't work. But it's definitely clear from the data that when those numbers are higher, pe those people are at lower risk. Uh, and so it appears to be more of a correlation than it appears to be a causation. Um, there have been historically a number of theories as to how it might work, for example, that it might have this uh, mechanism where it collects a bunch of cholesterol, extra stuff from the peripheral tissues and brings it back to the liver and things like that, um, as well as a bunch of other anti-inflammatory effects and things like that which again have not panned out entirely the way we would like when we actually try to test treatments designed to raise the levels. So that's why I said that I wouldn't do anything specifically to try to raise that number in practice. Rather, I would try to do things to lower that ApoB level or lower levels of uh, the low-density lipoproteins themselves. Right. So if somebody had like a stone-cold normal lipid panel, but their uh, HDL was 50, mm -hmm. you wouldn't be like, I need you to do X, that. Y, Z to get yeah. your, because we just don't know that that'll do anything positive and that even if we did get the thing up, yeah. we don't know that that would be better. Yeah, I had a patient recently actually who I saw whose, uh, whose lipid panel was one of the most whacked out that I've seen in a while. And his, his low density right here. lipoprotein <laughs> levels were in the, or his, his LDL levels were about in the 400s and his high density lipoprotein levels were zero, completely undetectable. The so-called good stuff was like not present. What? Uh, I told you about um, the context here. So this oh, individual yes. Ah, yes. was taking three different SARM medications at ah. the same time, kind of these selective androgen receptor modulator pseudo-anabolic steroid type chemicals. He was taking three of them at the same time. So I told him, I said, I suspect this is probably related to you taking three of these. Even one of them can cause you know, harm from the standpoint. So why don't we stop these things? Um, as well as uh, reduce the dose of testosterone that he was that he was taking. Uh, yes. I remember now. And uh, and uh, a few months later, 
now his numbers are back up to around 50 or so. Pretty substantial improvement even just by taking him off the medication. So I didn't do something in particular to raise that number, but it improved as a result of changing this other harmful thing that he was doing. Um, so would not take those either, SARMs, yeah, by the, the way. The SARMs things are interesting. So there, SARM stands for Selective Androgen Receptor Modulators. There's a handful of ones that have recently hit the black market in the past few years. None of them are currently available to use pharmaceutically because they're all in either stage two clinical trials or prior. They've not made it even into like being tested at the, at the uh, stage three level. And none of them are on the market, okay? But that being said, the chemical structures have been available for people to uh, create, and they do that, and you can buy them, um, although none of them are like, these is like pharmaceutical grade stuff, because the only pharmaceutical companies that are making them have patented these things. You can't just make that and, it be, and then sell them and it'd be okay. That's a you know, patent violation. So in any event, the SARMs right now that have been studied, that we do have data on, have either no improvement in things like musculoskeletal strength or lean body mass or very small improvements. Now granted, they've only been tested in older populations. The longest study right now is like 24 weeks and it did not improve the timed up and go test in uh, the elderly population even though there was a small increase in their lean body mass. But here's the thing, you're taking something that's banned in all tested sports that we don't have long-term safety data on, we don't know the potential side effects because they haven't been around that long, and it's not even available on the market right now that you could get like without going through black market channels, okay? People still take them. But people will still take them, <laughs> and so you don't know what you're getting. So this, you know, for this particular instance, he's like, I'm on three SARMs. Like, well, you're on three things that you thought were SARMs that may be cut with all sorts of different things because you know, your drug dealer friend is maybe not the most ethical person that you've ever met, <laughs> you know? Uh, so I don't, you know, because people ask, used to ask us all the time back in the shirtless Instagram live days. They're like, "What do you think of SARMs?" Well, that man? was a question submitted today, so you're touching on that anyway. Oh, should I just keep going or stop? Yeah. Oh, well. So my thing is this: so if you compete in a drug-tested sport, don't take SARMs, because uh, you know that's like cheating if you're agreeing to play by this arbitrary set of rules. Like, don't do that. Uh, just find another federation. The other thing is, because we don't have this long-term safety data, we don't have long-term, we don't even have like performance data suggesting these are like super beneficial outside of like anecdotes posted on forums that are supported by the SARM companies themselves. I don't think that I would take them from a performance enhancing standpoint. If you want to take illegal substances that you have to get from the black market, just take the, reg the anabolic steroids. <laughs> I'm, not I'm not telling you to take anabolic steroids, but I'm just saying I wouldn't take SARMs don't have <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, again, be, most anabolic steroids have, uh, we have better characterized their side effects, their risks, benef you know, potential benefits, dosing schedules, so there's more history and data on those things, particularly in humans. We don't have that in SARMs yet. And again, where you're buying them from, you, you know, that leaves a lot to be desired. Best case scenario for anabolic steroids that your doctor would be prescribing them to you. Well. Uh, just saying, best case. Or maybe, maybe in a very long time. Yeah, yeah, For yeah. sarcopenic patients. Correct, but from, a SAR, from SARMs though, like you can't get them. You're getting them from somebody who you know, made them in a bathtub or, you know, <laughs> or is just substituting something else. So I don't think that I could recommend them. Nope. All right. All right. For long-term achievement and increasing lean body mass, do you recommend cycling, weight loss, maintenance, and massing phases? 
If so, what are your recommended durations for each phase, or is this timeline simply based on specific individuals' goals and or response? Uh, yes. So, yes. <laughs> mm, it depends. Yes. <laughs> yes, no, and it depends. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, yeah, I, I think that the general process of gaining lean body mass will involve periods of gaining weight, maintaining weight, and reducing weight. So, yes, like cutting, bulking, and then maintenance. That, because you can't just gain lean body mass forever and it not get to a point where it becomes very inefficient. Like it will become very inefficient at different points. This is a whole nother area of like uh, of research where they talk about these things called a P ratio. So how you partition nutrients into different tissues in the body. Um, in any event, that the length duration is going to depend on the individual and their response to training. Which can and be nutrition. monitored using the techniques he mentioned in the weight gain lecture yesterday, yep. monitoring their waist measurement, for example. Yeah, right? so when the waist circumference starts increasing out of proportion to the body weight, yeah. uh, then you're like, we have a problem, this, this is becoming very inefficient. Now, if that's just one measurement, that's the first abnormal measurement that you've gotten, maybe you stay the course for another week and things will, you know, it was a measurement error or just a, an aberration, and so you can kind of go from there. But if you see somebody's waist circumference start to go up, go up, go up, go up, faster than their weight or out of control, then you're like, hey, things have become very inefficient. It's time to uh, reduce calories uh, and either enter a maintenance phase or weight loss reduction phase, depending on what you want to do. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, this is guided by personal goals, right? It'd be very difficult for me to make a strong case. So for you, for instance, if you were like, should I gain weight? And I'm like, I don't know, dude, you want to? And you're like, I don't know, should I? And I'm like, oh, I'll make a decision. It's your life, it's not my <laughs> life, you know? So, you know, from a coaching standpoint, if you're like, I wanna be the strongest person I can be, I'd be like, okay, well, I know that increasing muscle cross-sectional area is likely to improve your strength. I know that, you know, potentially moving up a weight class would allow you to carry more lean body mass. Maybe that improves your performance to a level that is uh, consistent with your life goals and your aesthetic goals, et cetera. I think I could make a case there. But for somebody who's very ambivalent. Like us. Yeah. That's <laughs> what I was getting at. we need to gain weight all the time. We're just like, don't care. What if we don't care? Yeah, so if I moved to the, like, so if I went up to the next weight class, 105 kilo class, and I squatted more and deadlifted more and bench pressed more, my life doesn't change. I just have worse sleep apnea. All right? Like, you know, and it doesn't matter to me. If it did, we would have already taken the steps to do so. Yep. So, <laughs> same thing with being lean, like getting leaner, right? So if you're like, should I lose weight? I'm like, I don't know, what do you wanna do? And you're like, uh, you know, just like go on living my life. I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> is your waist circumference the normal range? Is you, you know, are you carrying enough lean body mass? Are you, you know, enjoying your training, all this other stuff? And do you have any additional aesthetic goals? If the answer- Or health conditions related to body fat. Yeah, correct. So if you're doing fine, then I can't make a strong case for you losing body fat. Um, Unless it's just your personal goal, like I want to be leaner, in which case, cool, let's do that. Yep, I agree. Do you have anything else to add? No. R nothing? No, that's. Would you say that my answer is. Elegant. Elegant? <laughs> hey. All right, is this question five? Yes, it is. Question number five. With respect to patients getting too much information and noceboing themselves. <laughs> <laughs> you thought we made it the whole thing. Carry on. <laughs> With respect to patients getting too much information and noceboing themselves, 
In retail pharmacy, we're supposed to counsel patients on certain interactions, and the computer does not allow bypassing these without the pharmacist coming to the counter when patients pick up medications, i.e. increased risk of rhabdomyolysis with statin and clindamycin or uh, QTC prolongation with Celexa and Zofran. Uh, do you think these force counsels are helpful for patients? How would you approach the patient? So, um, all right, so this question is saying basically when the computer forces the pharmacist to talk to the patient about the side effects, if that is helpful to them. In an ideal world, the physician prescribing the medication should have already uh, ad addressed that issue. Um, for the two specific examples here, um, I'll say that with statins and clindamycin, I actually am not aware of a significant interaction there. With the QTC prolongation with Celexa and Zofran, there is an interaction there, but it's probably not a huge deal. Zofran in general, not a huge deal, but that's just these specific examples. In general, um, I think the physician should have already made the decision, is this a clinically significant thing that I need to be concerned about? And oftentimes, if we feel that it's not super significant, then we'll bypass it. However, in the real world, oftentimes people just bypass shit that pops up on the computer no matter what. Um, and just click through it. And sometimes le real legitimate interactions get through. I think the most severe interactions that can happen are things that we are very appreciative that pharmacists catch for us, particularly life-threatening ones. Um, I think that uh, for severe interactions like that that need to be that, uh, that a pharmacist catches and is forced to discuss with a patient, I don't really have a huge problem with that, again, because of the potential gravity of the situation, the potential risk associated with it. I would not have the pharmacist say, oh, I'm gonna not tell the patient about this potential risk interaction between their two medications because I don't wanna nocebo them, for example, because I think the risk, again, this should only be reserved for severe interactions. If they're like, oh, I didn't want to tell the patient about that their tummy might get upset by this medication. Like, yeah, yeah I'm okay with that. You say right? tummy? Yes. I'm trying to. Yeah, yeah, I see. You get it. Yeah, I get it. Uh, but for severe things, I think if you got to tell them, then you got to tell them. Ideally, this would have been done before this got to you. But I know that in the real world, that's not always the way it works. And sometimes people just click through things. Um, it's like a, it's kind of, but it's like a, it's like a legal thing more yeah, than anything else. That's, that's why, why I'm this saying exists. what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, that's why this exists, right? So it's like, no, we told you. Yeah. We told you, but. Yeah, ideally this would have happened, you know, before in the, the at the pharmacist level, this wouldn't have to happen. But it's just a it's a redundancy sort of yeah. thing. And for these severe, more severe interactions, like for getting rhabdo from your drug interactions, like nobody's going to nocebo you into getting rhabdo, right? That doesn't happen. Nobody's going to nocebo you into your QT hitting six hundred and you going into you know you dying from well, a, well if you believe it. Um, so, so nocebo effects with respect to these more severe ones is less of a concern for me compared to the more mild side effects that are best avoided when the benefit of the medication outweighs the risk. Yeah, like ED, muscle pain, yeah, stuff like exactly. that. With the whey protein, people kept asking us, which protein should I take? What do you recommend? And when we looked into it, we didn't really feel comfortable recommending any protein. So we just made our own. It's only got four ingredients. The essential amino acid and BCA contents are very high. This is exactly what you want out of a whey protein. Do you think I should do like a disclaimer when I send out training to people? Like, you may get too jacked. 
Black box warning. That's right. That was on our bridge. Yep. 70,000 downloads, what's up? <laughs> Humble brag. All right, if a person can complete a set of five by two, you don't think they mean 200 squats? I think they mean 200 pounds. Squats. I see, okay. Or, or kilos. Five by 200 squats. It's like five sets of 200. At RPE eight, so they know they only had two reps left in the tank. Yeah, I'll, 202 was there. 202. 203 wasn't. Politics. <laughs> if, a, if a person can complete a set of five sets of 200 pound squats at RP8 without preparatory arousal and a set of five at 210 pounds, also at RP8, with preparatory arousal, is the internal load the same? No. Is the training response? No. If so, does it matter which strategy one uses for daily training? Maybe. Um, okay, so the way I think about it like this. So as far as is the internal load the same? Well, no, because you've had to use more of your resources, your mental resources to get up for the set, okay? So how big of a difference? I don't know, I can't quantify that. We don't have like units, you know? Unless you're, you had, like if you had a training history that suggested that your session RPE was way higher every time that you got hyped up to do a bunch of sets, right? So you used caffeine, you played Slayer, like you called your ex-girlfriend, like I don't know, like if all those things. I don't know, but if, but on the other hand, if you had training history where you did all of that and your session RPE was no different, then maybe getting hyped up for a single set or a few sets doesn't matter. It's, that's gonna be dependent on the individual. So I can't say, but my gestalt would be that yeah, maybe, they, maybe there's a little bit of difference. As far as is the training response, well, one is heavier, like in absolute intensity, but since the relative intensity was the same, I don't think that you're gonna get a better training response just from five more pounds on the bar. It's the same relative in intensity, you know, still five sets at RP8, still the same relative intensity. Or five reps, I think, in this five case. Rep, five reps at RP8, yeah, yeah. so it's still the same relative intensity. So from a training outcome standpoint, I don't know that that matters. What I would want to know more is like, were they able to do more sets, more reps, like total volume, for instance, or uh, were they able to uh, translate a five pound heavier set of five into a better one RM? Like, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't think the training response would be markedly different. And then finally, if so, does it matter which strategy one uses for daily training? So if there are differences in those things, which can only be assessed retrospectively, then sure, you might want to pick a different strategy based on how you, you, know, how you uh, responded. So for instance, if Jim's like, look man, I like Taylor Swift, gets me hyped to train, right? Like I take a shot of Jim Beam every time before I deadlift, like that's my jam, and he's able to perform better Right, and he sees his estimated 1RM, for instance, going up, all of his working sets going up, his training response improving overall, he has that sort of history, okay, then maybe that is something that he chooses to use when strength is the most important goal for him, right? On the other hand, right, if he says, hey, whenever I do that, I'm good for one session, but then the next two or three weeks, on average, are bad, yeah. okay, then he doesn't choose that. But you can only figure this stuff out after like kind of trying it out a little bit, trying it on for size, and keeping notes, mm -hmm. which again is why you have an objective sort of metric of effort, weight, and then you have a subjective effort uh, rating of your effort, with RPE, RIR, something like that. Yeah, so I, I discussed a little bit about how RPE is actually a metric, a metric of internal load. And yeah, so from that yeah. standpoint, if we're saying we have two different sets 
again, a, a minor difference in load that are at the same RPE. Is the internal load the same? Well, the internal load as measured by RPE in that situation is the same, right? But if I had some sort of like uh, uh, biochemical test that was super sensitive enough to differentiate some difference in outcome from that metric uh, during the activity, because that's you know when the internal load kind of thing happens, uh, then I may indeed find a difference. I just don't think that it's super useful to get down to this like super hyper granular level of trying to differentiate these things. Um, and I think that looking, the last thing you said was what I was kind of get, uh, getting at with the idea of following this stuff over a longer period of time rather than saying like uh, 200 versus 210 in this session, is there a difference? It's like thinking too short term yeah, to like one session for the trees, yeah. versus thinking over a longer term sort of sort of a deal is the way that I would think about it. Yeah. And yeah, if you're getting hyped out of your mind for every single session, for most people who I've seen do that, uh, doesn't tend to work out for them for too long. They tend yeah. to psychologically get spent and burn out rather quickly. Yeah. Um, that was my experience on a certain program a few years ago where I would just have to get super, super hyped to be able to accomplish the daily task. Didn't work out great until I moved on from that approach to training. So um, I don't think it's a sustainable thing. I think that we, in our, in our training for ourselves, we probably tend to reserve that sort of preparatory arousal getting hyped up for particularly high priority sets or sessions. Yep. So our competition, you know, if we have a, a, a session where we're doing our competition squat, bench, or deadlift, and we're working up to a heavy single, then yeah, we'll use a little bit of that to focus for that particular thing. If there's a top work set that for whatever reason matters to us, um, then we'll do it there. Whereas like, if it's our tertiary lift where we're doing like, you know, a, if I'm doing like a set of 10 on the high bar squat or something, no, I'm not getting hyped up for that at all. Do you, remember, do you remember Brendan? Yes. Ammonia. <laughs> For every it was like it was like a Gatlin gun of like ammonia stuffed into his shorts, and it would be like curls. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, I don't uh, know how you live doing that. Yeah, the well, the interesting thing, yeah. So I think in practice, how this works is whatever a high priority workout or session or something, you use more tools in your bag to get to perform optimally for that, right? So not every session can be a high priority session. If every session is of high priority, then no sessions are high priority, right? You have to pick and choose. So for instance, I have a meet in two weeks, right? And I'm like, all right, well, when's the next time I'm gonna squat with my belt? Like, you know, when's the next time I'm gonna deadlift my belt? When's like my, my competition lifts? Cause I, I wanna perform well on those in these last few weeks of training. So that way I have a good psychological status going into my meet. But you know, by the time it gets to the last lift of the day, those aren't important anymore. And if I was like, you know, months out from a meet, then maybe I care a little less. Cool. Yeah. All right. One hundred percent of my clinical experience, including clinical evaluation, treatment modalities, etc., in athletic training school, has been thoroughly debunked. What do I do now, <laughs> and how do I go about introducing these pain science concepts to my colleagues? <laughs> Love it. Wow. Uh. Whew. You want me to start? <laughs> well, I, yeah, okay. So you have to be, you are going to leave here with quite a bit of enthusiasm for these new things that you have learned. You have to be careful how you bring these things to other individuals in your social circles. Uh, not everybody is ready to hear these things. Some people are going to be very entrenched in their way of thinking about things or their way of doing things. So if you 
show up to your athletic training school class or clinic uh, tomorrow morning and you say, here's all this information, you guys are idiots. Get ready for the knowledge train coming Get in. Get ready for the knowledge, we're about to drop it. You can't do that. Yeah. You are unlikely to be successful in delivering this information to your colleagues. Uh, so, you know, I work alongside a whole bunch of other staff doctors at the hospital where I work, but I don't go around telling them, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you don't know this, here's what you need to know. He actually right? does, it's weird. So, <laughs> um, so, for example, on the sarcopenia piece, I gave one of those lectures, similar to the one that we put on our YouTube channel a, a different time at our institution, and a bunch of my colleagues were there in the back listening, and then afterwards they were all coming up to me very curious about it, wanting to learn. So I knew that I had an opportunity to provide them with resources to go further with this stuff, right? Um, but I didn't go out and force this stuff down everybody's throats. And you have to be kind of diplomatic with how you do it. Um, otherwise, again, you're gonna get potentially something like a backfire effect, or you're just gonna, you know, you're gonna lose your, your entire chance of, of succeeding with this. Um, I think that's with, from the pain science stuff, I included some resources in you guys' books, uh, resources for patients, for professionals, and then a bunch of actual papers from the liter literature um, on the topic. And so if you, what, you know, there's multiple ways to introduce this stuff. You could just strike up a conversation about what you learned, ask them if they're interested in learning about what some of the research has shown, or send them a YouTube link to one of the lectures that, we, you know, in our group, when people ask about this stuff, we share them a bunch of, you know, or uh, we pick a good lecture from uh, Dr. Mosley from Australia who talks about this stuff. He's one of the best at delivering this stuff at a kind of a lay public level. And, you know, a, a non-confrontational way of doing it um, to an individual who is open to learning more is your best shot at getting through to somebody. If somebody is not interested in learning more, then just move on, continue living your life. Uh, or if, so, if you do it in a very confrontational way, you're likely to not succeed. So I think that informing yourself with a lot of these ideas uh, from a social psychology standpoint about belief change, I like all the content that is on those uh, McCraney's You Are Not So Smart podcasts about belief change. If you can understand, familiarize yourself with that kind of uh, that kind of stuff, then you'll have more success interacting with people on this stuff. But really just assessing whether somebody is open to learning more, open to changing their mind about things potentially, or exposing themselves to other ways of thinking about things. Um, and then if you find that that is present, getting your foot in the door and sending them resources that can hook people, right? You don't send them, you don't just say, hey, buy this 500 page book and read it and we'll talk about it, right? Because nobody's gonna do that. Send them a more accessible introductory resource where you can hook them and then you can start to reel them in from there. That's usually the way I go about it, particularly using you know, a 15 minute YouTube video or something like that, which is probably pushing the limits of some people's attention span. Uh, but if it's engaging enough, That's true. Which Mosley's stuff is super engaging. He can tell he tells great stories and gets people hooked on this stuff. Gary. Then you can then you can reel them in. So, yeah, I I think you know from a practice standpoint, you just you're you're gonna end up doing what you feel like is best, and you're gonna use evidence that you have been exposed to and your own experience. And you can't separate those things, right? So part of this is evidence-based behavioral practice. So trying to expose yourself to more and more evidence helps get you closer and closer to what we actually have research on. Um, and that being said, if you, don't, if you or someone you know doesn't have the mental model to like understand pain the current pain science, current management strategies, all that other stuff, then you just telling them about it 
it, it's going to miss them. It well, maybe even offend them. You know, you get that backfire effect. So, you know, I don't know. Yeah, just similar to Austin, what Austin said. That somebody asks you about it, you can provide resources, and I think, or you know, entry level resources. You should have those on the ready if you actually want to be a sort of subject matter expert on this. On the other hand, if you don't want to do that, you just want to go on practicing affecting, affecting as many patients as possible. I don't know that that's your role. You say, you know, hey, there's this whole like realm of pain science, like Google it. And then you focus on how to best manage your patients. You know, like peer-to-peer -peer learning is super important, but I'm not gonna pretend that everybody is responsible for that. All right, very cool. All right, so hey, thank you guys so much for coming out. Really enjoyed having you. Thanks for watching on YouTube. You guys are great. We'll see you guys next time. The problem with pea protein compared to a really high quality whey protein is that it doesn't have all the essential amino acids that a whey protein has. One of the biggest benefits of a whey protein is that it has this huge, huge concentration of essential amino acids. So what we did is we used pea protein, we took all the essential amino acids and upped them to the same level of whey. So the essential amino acid content in our vegan protein is the same as a whey protein isolate. So if you are a vegan and you're wanting a high quality protein, this is the one for you.